Hello and welcome to Speaking to the Dead, the podcast where the interviewee is as dead as the jokes. I'm Will Stafford, postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Philosophy at the Czech Academy of Sciences. And I'm Doug Rooney, lecturer of English, Language and Literature at the Capital University of Economics and Business in Beijing. And joining us this week is Gabrielle de Muthi, author of the Historia de Mobo, and apologies in advance for our pronunciation. Let all creation tremble with fear before the judgment of God. Let human frailty submit to its creator. May a greater grief be kindled in all hearts and tears well up in all eyes as future ages hears what happens in this disaster. When one person lay sick in a house, no one would near come. Even dear friends would hide themselves away, weeping. The physician would not visit. The priest, panic-stricken, administrated the sacraments with fear and trembling. Listen to the tearful voices of the sick. Have pity, have pity, my friends. At least say something, now that the hand of God has touched me. Oh, Father, why have you abandoned me? Do you forget that I am your child? Mother, where have you gone? Why are you now so cruel to me when only yesterday you were so kind? You fed me at your breast and carried me within your womb for nine months. My children, who I brought up with toil and sweat, why have you run away? Man and wife reach out to each other. Alas, once we slept happily together, but now we are separated and wretched. And when the sick were in the throes of death, they still carried out piously to their family and neighbors. Come here, I'm thirsty. Bring me a drink of water. I'm still alive. Don't be frightened. Perhaps I won't die. Please hold me tight. Hug my wasted body. You ought to be holding me in your arms. And when the victim breathed his last, it was often the mother who shouted her son and placed him in the coffin. Or the husband who did the same for his wife. For everyone else refused to touch the dead body. No prayer, trumpet, or bell summoned friends and neighbors to the funeral, nor was mass performed. Degraded and poverty-stricken wrenches were paid to carry the great and noble to burial. For the social equals of the dead people dare not attend the funeral for fears of being struck down themselves. I am overwhelmed. I can't go on. Everywhere one turns, there is death and bitterness to be described. The hand of the Almighty strikes repeatedly to greater and greater effect. So, that was the Historia de Mobo. Can you tell me something about it, Doug? Yeah, the Historia de Morbo is a very important text to historians of the mid-14th century, especially those focusing in on the Black Death and its transmission, as it's quite a detailed account of the initial transmission from Asia to Europe of the Black Death. It's a really beautiful but also haunting piece of text. Can you tell me anything about uh, the writer, Gabriel? Yeah, Gabriel de Moussi, well, to be honest, there isn't very much known about the man. Basically, we know that he was a lawyer, that he was living in the northern Italian city of Paganza um, at the time of the Black Death, and that he was obviously an eyewitness to the effects of the Black Death in Italy and seemed to have access to the effects of the Black Death and its transmission to elsewhere in Italy and in southern Europe. And 
Is this his only written text or the only one we have that survives? As far as I can tell, yes. Um, I'm not an expert in this period by any manner of means, but as far as I can tell, Gabriel de Moussi um, wrote Historia de Morbo. Presumably he wrote other things, but I couldn't find any in my research, my background research on him. This is definitely his most important text. Like It's hard to overstate the importance of this text as a primary resource into how the Black Death was transmitted in the early stages. So you say this is a really important source for how the Black Death was transmitted in the early stages in Europe. Can you tell me why exactly? So this bit that we listen to is him lamenting uh, the arrival of the Black Death and him trying to essentially put that within his uh, cosmological knowledge of how the world is meant to work, right? So he talks a lot about how he sees this as a bolt from the Almighty, and how the Almighty is punishing Europe for some reason. And he's trying to square this with his knowledge of the cosmology. Before this section, however, he gives a really detailed account of how it was that Europeans came to be infected by the Black Death to begin with. So the basic story goes like this. In the 1340s, there is a city in Crimea called Kafka, which is besieged by the, uh, by the, and I'm going to mispronounce this, so apologies, by the Chipkat Khanate. So what is happening is Italy and Genoa, more specifically, in the early 14th and late 13th century, is becoming very, very wealthy. It is developing trade networks throughout the Eastern Mediterranean, um, in places like Jaffa, Acre, Caesarea. It's even owning islands in the Aegean, taking them off of the collapsing Byzantine Empire. As part of this expansion in their commercial power, Genoa, in 1266, is given a lease on the city of Kafka in the Crimea. However, shortly after that, and sometime in the late 13th century, the Mongol Ekipkat Kani converts to Islam. So by the 1340s, this Kani is really wanting this city back, from the Christian Genoans. What happens then is, at least according to the Historia de Moibo, the Chipkit Kani besieges the port city of Kafka, trapping the Genoan, Venetian, and other Italian merchants inside. At some point during that siege, the army outside the walls becomes infected by what would later become known as the Black Death, by this plague. It has a really devastating effect in the army to the point where Gabriel de Muthi tells us they can't really carry on with the siege. But what they decide they can do is to infect the people being besieged within the city. So what they do is they put bodies on catapults and literally throw them into the city of Kafka. And we're told by Gabriel de Muthi that so many bodies are thrown into the city that the uh, defenders of the city simply can't keep up. So they try and throw them into the sea, but they can't do it quickly enough, and it infects the water supply. And he assumes that is why the people within the city become infected by the same disease. Now, we know that if this was indeed the Black Death, the bubonic plague, that it's actually very unlikely the city was infected by the dead bodies, as, it, as transmission from dead bodies to living is actually quite difficult with the bubonic plague. It's far more likely that it was what happened is infected rats from the besieging army got into the city, infected the city, and then that's how the, the transmission spread. But as far as we can tell, this is the transmission point where the Black Death is transmitted to Europeans from 
uh, from its origin point somewhere in Asia. And you say uh, from its origin point somewhere in Asia, do we know where exactly the Black Death first made its transmission into humans? We do not know exactly, but we have a rough idea. So modern scholarship suggests it probably originated in Central Asia somewhere. The reason we think this is looking at mortality rates, it seems that there was a spike in the death rate in what is now Kazakhstan um, and Uzbekistan sometime in the late 1330s and early 1340s. And uh, historians around the city of Izilkku, which is in modern Kyrgyzstan, have found lots of grave markers from this period, which seem to refer to the fact that lots of people around this area were dying of some kind of disease. What we do know, thanks to Byzantine sources, is that the Golden Horde uh, and the Khanate, that would later then go to besiege Kafka, seem to have been struck down by some kind of outbreak in the early 1340s. And you mentioned that uh, Gabriella de Musi thinks that the throwing of dead bodies is passing disease, which seems like, you know, a very plausible folk mechanism for disease being spread. But you also mentioned that it's probably the rats. So, I mean, that's what I was taught in school, right, was that Black Death was spread by rodents. Is that still the prominent view? Is that what we think is likely happening here? Yes and no. Because in Kafka there isn't person-to-person interaction, obviously, between the besiegers and the sieged, it is assumed that what is happening is rats, and more specifically the fleas in the rats, are moving from the camp into the city. However, once it's in the city, transmission person to person is, is very, very infectious, right? So most of the infection, once it's in the city, is probably occurring um, through the air, through coughing and, and other such things. Um, yeah, definitely rats are obviously going to play a part, especially in spreading it um, where there isn't person to person transmission, like in Kafka. But also, I think probably the vast majority of transmission once it's in a city is from person to person, which I think you can record here. We can hear this in the words of Gabriel de Musi, right? He is saying that parents and children and very close family members are avoiding contact. Why? Because at some level they are aware that person to person you're getting this transmission happening. So in some sense, when he talks about people not being willing to go to their relative who calls out to them, that was necessary. But then when he talks about the burial and the refusal of the family to remove the body or go to the funeral, in some senses, that was a tragedy partially caused by a lack of information about how the disease spread. Sure. Yeah, because from the dead body itself, there is actually very, the threat isn't zero, but it's much more limited. What I would say, though, is that groups of people coming together for a funeral are obviously very, very dangerous at any point of the disease, right? So the danger is probably not coming from the dead body, especially by the time they're in a coffin, but it might be coming from the fact that the family are coming and meeting again. And as we uh, know from school, one of the infection points can be fleas, right? Which can be in rats, but it can also be in their clothes. Going there and touching the dead body, the dead body itself might not give you the disease, but if their clothes had fleas that were infected, that could be a danger point. So we've been talking about the Black Death, but I don't think I'm uh, fully clear on what exactly the Black Death is. I mean, I have this idea of pustules in my mind, 
again from my school days. Is that right? What are the symptoms? What does this disease look like? There is always a danger when talking about historic pandemics, especially when as far back as the Black Death or, or diagnosis, right, or wrongly diagnosing it. Because obviously, while the medical knowledge in the 14th century is much more advanced than, say, the popular idea of the medieval doctor is, for instance, they do have a basic idea of how the disease is transmitted, right, and how to prevent it. Uh, we have people isolating themselves and wearing masks, for instance. Doc the doctors at the time obviously aren't trained in modern medicine, so how they would diagnose a disease is different, and how their understanding of a disease works is different from a modern day. That being said, as far as we can tell, the Black Death appears to have been a version of the bubonic plague. So the bubonic plague is spread by a, by a um, bacteria called Yersinia pestis. Um, and what it will do is it attacks your, uh, your lymphoid system, which is what the swelling is occurring, right? And you're quite right to say that boils would form, uh, usually around, around the neck or in the armpits. However, the, the main danger from the bubonic plague isn't really the boils. What's happening is you will get a fever, you'll get chills, you'll get vomiting, you'll get diarrhea, which will dehydrate you, and eventually death. From Gabrielle de Muffy's account, uh, later on in the account, it seems that at the time, it was assumed that the, the time between the infection, you showing your first symptoms and death, was about three days. Why I am talking about Gabriel de Moussi and not saying our modern understanding of the bubonic plague is because obviously our versions of the bubonic plague, which exist today, might not necessarily be the version that they are encountering in the 1340s. So while our modern understanding of the bubonic plague is much more advanced in many ways than theirs, I think when studying ancient diseases, it's always important to go to the original source and say, oh, okay, so what are they saying? They're saying first symptom to death is about three days. Um, so yes, it's not a nice disease to get. It's a very, very terrible, terrible disease to get. It's very, very uncomfortable. And as, you, as we see from this account, when someone got it, fear would rip through their community, for their extended community. So not only is it this terrible, terrible, debilitating disease that you could get, it will also lead to this fear where people, your primary caregivers will leave you very, very quickly because there's this fear of infection. And presumably in leaving, take the disease with them. Definitely, yeah, definitely. Because like most diseases, right, the time you show your first symptom is not necessarily the time you become infectious. Um, and yeah, of course, when people leave, the first person gets sick, you leave, it's in many ways already too late. Um, and we can actually see this on a bigger societal scale during the Black Death. Um, so Gabriel de Moussi talks about it himself in his sources, and later modern historians have done analysis of this, is what happens is... So essentially, it's this tragedy. At Kafka, what happens is the disease means that the siege can't really take place um, in, in the same intensity as it had previously, which allows Genoans and Venetians to escape the city. So what happens is the outbreak occurs in Kafka, Genoan and Venetian and other Italian merchants get on their ships and they sail away. And we can watch the initial spread of the disease in Europe follow their route back to Italy. What happens is... They go from Crimea across the Black Sea and they arrive in Constantinople in May 1347. A couple of weeks later, we have an outbreak in Constantinople. They then arrive in Crete and Venice in November 1347. 
Venice later becomes this massive epicenter of the disease in northern Italy. They eventually, they go to Messina in Sicily, later in 1347. They then sail on to Sardinia in Corsica, and finally reach Genoa, their final destination, sometime in July 1347. Again, Genoa becomes this massive epicenter of the disease. So we can see these people who presumably at the time when they got on those ships in Kafka were not showing symptoms. By the time they get home to Genoa, to Venice, to, the, to Messina, to these other Italian cities, are arriving sick. We know they're arriving sick because what happens in some cities like Genoa is they send the sailors away. They say, you're not allowed in. So what happens is part of the reason why they're jumping from port to port is because no one will let them in. And what this does is it just succeeds in spreading the disease further and further along the trade routes of Europe. As you say as well, one of the great tragedies is people panic. So as you say, people leave and it spreads the disease. We can see this in Messina, for instance, which is one of the far earliest cases in, in mainland Europe, uh, which is in, in Sicily. Messina is infected. Those who can flee the city of Messina into the countryside of S Sicily and into Regino Calabria across across the Straits of Messina. What happens then is some weeks, about seven weeks after the first infection of Messina, we see it exploding in the Sicilian and Italian countryside. So it's a really, really tragedy, I think. It sounds tragic. And as the passage says, this idea of the sick calling out that they're thirsty, as you said, dehydration was one of the symptoms of the disease, one of the issues, and no one would come and bring them water sounds particularly tragic for the individual, but what you seem to be suggesting is that this was really devastating on a societal scale as well. Certainly. So obviously, again, it's difficult to estimate how many people died during the Black Death in Europe, right? Because we don't have very good census records, right? Uh, people weren't recording exactly how many people died. However, we can estimate that in Europe alone, somewhere between 25 and 30 million people died due to the Black Death, which represents somewhere between the levels of 30 and 50% of the overall population of Europe. It's estimated throughout Eurasia, the Black Death may be killed somewhere in the region of 200 million people, which is an insane number of people to die. Even today, it would be an insane number of people to die, especially then when that constituted a massive chunk of the global population. This was really a world-changing event. Certainly, this was a world-changing event. But I think we'll get more into the societal, economic, and even religious effects of the Black Death after this break. Here at Lord Randolph and Family Feudal Manor, we understand that the Black Death has made the 1340s a hard time for all of us. Millions dead, the economy in tatters, the social fabric tearing, the shipment of Lord Randolph's favourite Gascon wine unable to dock due to quarantine orders. We have all felt the effects of this global pandemic. As we emerge from the Black Death, let's not allow social division to become the new normal. And in that spirit, Lord Randolph is now abolishing serfdom and slavery across all his holding. After all, you can't spell feudal without you. So coming back off the break, we were talking about how many people died and the numbers are truly staggering. 
in some ways, it almost sounds like the snap from Infinity Wars, where half the population just disappears. How does that impact things like farming, commerce, government? I think before we think about that question, it's important to think about what the world was like before the arrival of the Black Death. So the early 14th century was a time of expanding globalization. This is the period of Marco Polo and Ibn Battuta. Uh, People are traveling further than really any time they had uh, prior to that time, right? So there are massive trade networks linking places like Scotland and Moscow to places like China. And people are traveling along these trade networks. This is a period of also immense economic growth, especially in places like northern Italy, where cities like Genoa and Venice and Pisa are expanding their trade networks all across the Mediterranean. Places in the eastern Mediterranean are also becoming richer and richer. And places in what is sometimes called the Maritime Silk Road around the Indian Ocean are also becoming richer and more connected. What happens with the Black Death is this period of economic prosperity across Eurasia comes crashing down. So as you say, it's like a snap, almost in a snap. In the case of a couple of years, the population is halved or cut in a third. This has a massive impact on uh, the economy of these places. So for instance, cities like Genoa never really recover their economic Uh, their economic prosperity that they had prior to the Black Death. So one of the reasons, for instance, many cities in northern Italy have these really, really beautiful medieval houses in them is because, simply put, after the Black Death, their economy contracted so much, they didn't have money to replace what were quickly becoming outmoded and outdated houses. Also what happens is there is a tear in the fabric of the social order of the medieval society. So as some scholars have put it, post the Black Death, what you see is you see a rise in religiosity as at the same time you start to see a decline in the trust of the church leadership and religious hierarchy. So you get movements like the Lollards um, and other dissenting sects appearing and popping up all over Europe in the wake of the Black Death because it was seen as somehow the the religious authorities of that period had somehow let people down. So one of the things that is really interesting about the Black Death is during this period, it tended to be the good priests who died. So if you were a good priest, you want to give last rites to the people who are dying, which means you die off, you catch the disease. The priests who tend to survive are the ones who renege on their parish duties. So all of these kind of things are coming together to really attack at the fabric, not only economically, but socially of the fabric of European society in this time. I suppose Christianity has, as one of its uh, important features, the idea of the end days. Did the Black Death lead to cults and groups that thought that were the end days were coming? Oh, definitely. So you have one of the more famous groups, or this group called the Brethren of the Cross, who are um, otherwise called the Flagellant Movement. The reason being is because what they did during the middle of this pandemic, what they would do is they looked around and they saw that the religious authorities had in many ways not managed to prevent what seemed like an apocalyptic end time. So what these these brethren, the Brethren of the Cross, would do is they would move around the European countryside and they would whip themselves with with, uh, leather whips onto their their naked back. They would come into towns 
They would stand in the square, they would chant the litany of the saints, they would chant other psalms and prayers, and they would beat themselves. And the idea was that what they were saying is, we are taking on the sins of these communities so that uh, this community may be spared the horrors of the Black Death. However, this movement was very short-lived. Why? Because they were a group of people with open wounds moving through the countryside at a time of global pandemic. They, of course, rather than preventing the spread of the disease, just quickened it. Yeah, I imagine that that's certainly not quarantining. Definitely. And what is interesting is the Pope at the time, Pope Clement VI, does quarantine. So for the length of the pandemic, he essentially hides himself in his palace and puts two massive fires beside him and sits essentially sweating it out because at the time it was believed heat would protect you from the pandemic. So people like religious leaders like popes were quarantining and these other dissident groups were see, seeing this as, as in some way as a, a sign of weakness almost, right? You're meant to be leading us, instead you're hiding away. We are going to take on the mantle of, of religious authority here. And as I say, the, the Brethren of the Cross are quite short-lived because many of them die out, but out the other end of the of the Black Death, you start to see a rise in, in other dissenting religious and political groups. So, well, it's really interesting, moving away from religion to for a moment to think about society. You say that the Pope quarantined, but presumably, just like nowadays, quarantining is only an option for certain people. And in many ways, the prerequisite is wealth. Was that the same during the Black Death? Of course. Uh, so the effect on the upper classes was bad, right? We have records of, uh, for instance, the, the city of Perpignan. Uh, we have this idea that before the Black Death, there are 125 scribes in this city. After the Black Death, there are only 45 of them. So it is having a massive effect. However, studies, especially in England, have found that when you look at it, we're saying like, say, 50%, 30 to 50% of the population are being affected. It seems to be among the general population, this is true. But when you start going up to people like um, city councilmen or nobles, it's becoming a much smaller section of that population. So yeah, definitely it's having a much more disproportionate impact, especially on the poor living in cities in these very, very crowded medieval cities are being disproportionately affected. And I suppose we probably can't know, but we can wonder whether that was because those who are richer are, are more able to avoid getting the disease or because there are in a better situation to fight it off, or even maybe have better access to medicine, because while we think of medieval medicine as, as little better than quackery, there are some effective medical practices at the time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, against the bubonic plague, it has to be stressed that even today, we don't really have many effective countermeasures against it. Um, it's still, still very, very deadly if you get it today. So in the medieval past, regardless of how good your doctor is, there isn't all that much they can do for you. However, they did, as I said uh, before the break, have a basic idea of how it was being transmitted. For instance, they did understand the basic idea of quarantining. Um, they had the basic idea of, of wearing masks, which is where these plague doctors come in. They had this idea of like adding nice scents, which, while we know is not particularly effective, does come from this idea that they, there's some idea that it's passing through the air or the miasma. So probably quarantining is playing a big role then in the uh, survival rates among the better off, particularly as you're right that 
you basically need antibiotics for the bubonic plague. And we know that nothing like that existed at the time. Does this uh, affect the views people have towards the better off? Or is this only known post hoc with archaeological analysis? The problem with understanding what people thought about the better off is that, simply put, for this period, we only have the written records of the better off. So I like to think about it is imagine, uh, imagine all of our information about American society came from people who had been professors at Ivy League colleges. It's obviously a very limited pool of people who are able to write and whose writing was considered important enough to preserve. For instance, for the vast majority of people, especially of poorer people, they just simply couldn't write. They don't have any written material evidence, and even the archaeological evidence can't really tell you all that much about how they perceive their bears off. However, there have been studies into peasant revolts before and after the Black Death, and it does seem that post the Black Death, there was a spike in peasant unrest. Caveat, however, we do not know whether that is because our records of what is happening in the lower orders become more detailed after the Black Death as we go into the Renaissance, or if it is because there is a genuine spike. Mm -hmm. And that's always an issue, is it might just be your recordings that are poor, not the actual data. So Gabriel de Moussi is a member of the upper class then, right? Uh, he's one of these people that uh, is in a better position with regards to the plague. But it seems like he has a real empathy for those who are suffering. Should we think of what he's writing as reflecting the position of rich merchants and lawyers and scribes? Or do you think he's talking about the experience throughout the layers of human society at the time? Is, is the experience of the Black Death something that kind of unites people in this tragedy? I think, again, it's difficult to tell because we just can't compare it to people who weren't fairly affluent, educated individuals, right? If there was something like a medieval Twitter, maybe we could compare it to, uh, to what poorer people are experiencing the Black Death in. I would say, however, most of the records of the experience of the Black Death, whether they be letters or chronicles, do see this as a massive tragedy, right? Like, how could you not? Even if you have managed to escape into the countryside, like 50% of the population dies. That means every family in Europe, regardless of whether you're the royal family or down to the poorer, must have known at least someone who died during this pandemic. So I think Yes, he's recording this genuine sense of grief and anguish, especially considering he is writing so close to the events he's describing. And I, I get the impression, having read a couple of sources about this, that this is a genuine feeling that spreads from the lowest to the upper, up, to the upper levels of society. This feeling that something disastrous is happening, that the world might be coming to an end. Something I've been told, kind of changing topic a little bit, is that after the Black Death, because of labour shortages, we see suddenly an expansion in freedom for the lower class citizens, because now they can leave their land, there's lots of demand elsewhere, and they also get better conditions and pay, because people need to keep hold of this smaller pool of labour. Is that right? It's arguable. Definitely what happens is the institution of serfdom 
this idea that uh, a peasant is tied to a bit of land. So when you sell the land, the peasant goes with it, dies out in Western Europe after the Black Death. However, prior to the Black Death, this system was already dying. So the idea is if the Black Death had not occurred, the serf system would have probably died out in the 14th century at some point anyway. The other fact that is often banded around is that after the Black Death, as you say, because there is a shortening of the labour pool, there's more demand for labour, people have to be paid more. Why I say this is debatable, so after the Black Death, because of the economic uh, devastation that occurs, it seems that there was a massive spike in inflation. So currently in the literature, there's a bit of a debate about the rising wages, how much of this was because you just had to pay more people because of inflation and how much this was actually an increase in your living standards in real terms. And I suppose no one uh, kept records of inflation and in fact probably didn't even really understand the mechanisms behind inflation that well at the time. There are economic records, especially in England um, and especially in, say, um, ecclesiastical baronies. And that's where kind of some of the complications come in. So it seems to be that after the Black Death, um, there was a decrease in the amount of being paid in kind. So there is this theory coming out of recent studies into ecclesiastical manor roles that what was happening is wages were increasing, but it used to be much more common, say you get lower wages, but you also get, I don't know, a chicken or, or something like this for your work. And it seems these paid in kind seem to be getting faded out. So this is where this debate comes in about, well, yeah, maybe the wage is increasing, but to what extent? And also in places like England, uh, laws are passed capping wages as well, which is quite interesting, right? Um, so after the Black Death in England, for instance, Edward III sees that there is this increase in wages and puts a cap on the maximum earnings of wages of the peasant class. I see. So something like the evil twin of the minimal minimum wage. Yes, yes. There is a maximum wage, but only if you are in the lower classes. So importantly, knights and lords did not have their wages capped. That is predictable. Uh, <laughs> does... Does this lead to increased social mobility, do we know? You said, for example, that a town that had 100 scribes suddenly had 40. Presumably also the pool of people who would normally become scribes, the children of people in the right position, are also tragically reduced. Does this lead to just less people in certain positions, or does it lead to an opening up where... Uh, there's a greater ability to move above your station. Maybe we don't know, but I mean, it's interesting to think about. So my theory, because I mostly study the earlier Middle Ages and I have a bit of a bias, is my personal theory is actually as we go on in time, social mobility stagnates. So I think actually, uh, so I think actually that in times of economic stress, often we see a stagnation in social mobility right um and i have this feeling that in western europe we see a similar thing so we have really strict laws for instance about what different orders could wear also i think again the economic prosperity in the post-plague years were a way that you could make yourself socially mobile right you could do something like marco polo does you can go off 
and explore the world, maybe make your riches. That is economic, um, economic leading to social mobility. After the plague years, because of the contraction of the economy, you're right, a lot of people initially die off that you need to replace. But in the long term, well, where are you going to get the money to become socially mobile in an ever-increasing, uh, shrinking, uh, shrinking economic pot? That's interesting. It does take a very long time for populations to rebound to pre-plague levels, right? Yeah, so we're looking in England, for instance, they don't really recover until the Tudor era, which is really insane, right? It's like, imagine uh, that we are just recovering from something that occurred uh, during the regency of George IV. Well, that's a very, very long time to have uh, to have your population and in many ways your economy not really recover from this big devastating impact of plague. Yes, a, a very long time and presumably something that continued to have a social impact. Well, we know it continued to have a, a social and uh, impact on media and literature and so on because it still has an impact today. Yeah, and also... Uh, it has to be said that the plague did not die out in the 1340s. There were reoccurrences throughout the 14th century. Yeah, so there, it reoccurs. It comes back every 15, 20, 25 years. You have this recurrence of plague. Now, none of them are as widespread or as devastating as the initial outbreak, but these recurrences uh, on a localised level go all the way up until uh, the 16th and 17th centuries. So this is having an impact on your population, right? If every 15 to 25 years, there's a recurrence of plague that is killing off people, this makes it even more difficult to recover your population. So it seems like there are lots of impacts from the Black Death. There are impacts on religious authority, there may be increases in uh, uh, social turmoil, it has a big impact on the economy, and presumably a really big impact on people's day-to-day -day lives, one that's kind of lost largely to time due to a lack of literacy. But if you were to sum up quickly what we should think of the main impacts of the Black Death, what do you think you would say? So I think the largest impact of the Black Death is on religious and social authority, because we are living in a world, and we can hear this in Gabriel de Moussi's account, we are living in a world where there is this feeling that if something happens, God had a hand in it. So if this plague is happening, it must, God must have a hand in it. He must be punishing Europe for some sin that they may have committed. And so what this does is one, it leads to a breakdown in the trust of a religious authority, because as we've already said, you're the guys who are meant to be leading us out of sin, you clearly failed in doing this. And two, we see an increase in people looking around for some cause of what did Europe not do that led to this great punishment. So in Germany, for instance, we see a massive spike in anti-Semitism. Right along the Rhine Valley, we see these massive, massive massacres of Jewish people because it was felt in that period that allowing these Jews to live among them, this different religious group to live among them, must be why we're being punished. In England, where Jews had already been expelled, you see an increase in attack on lepers for similar reasons. And I think the long-term impact of this going forward into the Renaissance is this beginning of the breakdown of religious authority weakens the authority of the Western church to hold everyone together. 
I suppose also that highlights how wrong things can go. Speaking of massacres, when you try and attribute human-like reasons to natural disasters. Well, that seems like a good place to end for today. Please join us next episode where we'll be talking to the pre-Socratics about the birth of philosophy. Can you believe we're already two episodes in? If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. This episode was produced and recorded by myself, Doug Rooney, and Will Stafford. And we would like to thank Cormac Lynn for reading for Gabrielle de Moussi and Jamie Stafford for the ad read. Until next time, thanks for listening.